Thank you. Um, speaking of household names, um, we all know Narina Fissa, our next speaker, a regular market commentator um, on media channels and a leading figure in um, driving the ETF re revolution in South Africa. Um, not only is Narina director of ETF South Africa, but also serves as vice president on the board of the CFA Society South Africa. She's a consultant to the IFC, a member of the JC issuer regulation uh, and product advisory committees, uh, serves on the SWIFT African Advisory Group, and also on the editorial advisory committee of the Collective Insight publication. Um, for her sins, she's also a retirement fund trustee. Um, please join me in welcoming Narina, who will be exploring the concept of risk in index tracking investments. Good morning and thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate this opportunity. Um, uh, there was a time in my, in my youth that I had the illusions that I too shall become an actuary. Um, I will not disclose today whether I'm glad that I did not follow that route. Um, I did, however, uh, get stuck into the maths and the stats bit, and I'm, I'm sorry that Jeremy has already left because I had high appreciation for the extent to which he was able to bring numbers to those of us that really love them and really appreciate them. Um, I'm also extremely grateful for Jeremy for speaking about probably every single taboo that there is to speak about. There's only one left for me to talk about, of course, and that's passive investment. Don't say it out loud. Index tracking investments. And uh, yes, I hope in the, in the next um, half hour or so, maybe to just uh, dig a little bit into the idea of what does risk mean in the concept of index tracking investments. I'm sure that you've all heard that ETFs are low risk. Well, I think that um, description or that definition needs a bit of, of exploration and needs a bit of clarity. So um, I'm going to try and move through my slides as quickly as possible and uh, then leave time for, for questions if, if there is such time. So um, I'm not quite going to be, I think, as amusing as Jeremy. My pictures are more words rather than pictures. So um, let's see if we can get through this as, as quickly as possible. So when we talk about risk, I think the first thing I want to ask or us to ask ourselves is whose risk are we really talking about or risk from whose point of view are we talking about? Because when we look at risk and in investments, there's really different ways and different factors that are very important. Whether you are the investor, so is it your money that's being invested? Are you the investment professional, the person who's got to make these investment decisions? Or are you the regulator? And in that case, you've got, might have a very different concept of risk. So to, to try and, and dig a little bit deeper into these different concepts of risk, I went to that esteemed um, source of, of definitive information, um, the, the better, the upmarket version um, of Wikipedia called Investopedia. So um, I'm going to share some definitions from Investopedia with you this morning and then hopefully try and, and, and color that in a little bit or, or um, in, in, um, 
go a little bit further in terms of that. So often when we talk about um, investment risk and the definition of it as, as Investopedia basically shares there with us, they really talk about um, the different versions of risk typically in the investment industry is a calculation of the measurement of standard deviation or volatility. And so often this is just about the only way that people tend to look at risk. But of course we all know that it's you know, rife with flaws. We all try and look to alternative ways to do it and ultimately find ourselves our way back again to this assumption of normality. And I think Jeremy's presentation certainly showed to us that if not in quantitative terms, then certainly in interpretive terms, normality is certainly not the norm as we would expect it. But when you look at that standard deviation, that's really the primary concern for the investment professional. But when you talk to the investor, especially to the retail investor, as I often do, they couldn't care less about volatility or standard deviation. The concept doesn't even mean anything to them. They're really only concerned about one thing, and it's a two-sided coin. Yes, they're certainly worried about losing their money, and they want to make as much money. That's really all that features in their world. So talking to them in the concept of standard deviation or volatility really doesn't mean anything to them at all. And then when you come to the regulator, the regulator says, I am expecting a certain type of return from an investment based on the mandate, based on the strategy, based on the trust deed of the unit trust that I'm dealing with. Does the investment actually offer the performance that I was expecting it to give me? And these three concepts are all quite different, not only in terms of how you would measure it or how you approach it, but I think also how you present these concepts too, depending on who your target audience is. So how do we reconcile these very different concepts of risk? Let's maybe dig a little bit deeper into each of these and how they can be evaluated and calculated. So let's just start with volatility, standard deviation. I don't think I need to explain to anyone in this audience how to calculate volatility or standard deviation, but it is really just a statistical measure. It talks about the dispersion of returns. So when I shoot somewhere, how wide is that buckshot approach that I've got there? It can be measured, the volatility, by using the standard deviation, but you can do that either on an absolute basis, so for a particular security or a particular investment, look at the dispersion of its returns relative to its own historic performance. That's an absolute volatility number. A relative volatility number, however, would be relative between that particular investment and the market index, or maybe relative to an, a competitor or an alternative asset that you're evaluating to invest. So already, even within standard deviation and volatility, you see how we get this digression in terms of the interpretation of the number that comes out. Something can have a very high absolute risk, but a very low relative risk it can have a very high relative risk and a very low absolute risk. Which is bad? Which is good? How do we reconcile these things? And probably I think one of the biggest problems around the calculation of standard deviation or volatility as a measure of risk is it's all historical. It tells us nothing about what does this mean for the risk in the future of this particular investment that we are busy looking at. So if we then look at the view of the investor, the investor is probably the one that's most concerned with a special form of standard deviation, which is downside deviation, the downside risk. That's really the area of the equation or the graph that he would be most interested in. So it's the potential to suffer a decline um, in value. 
It, it really sort of explains the worst case scenario. So a little bit like Jeremy's presentation. Uh, I think that was mostly downside risk that we were looking at there. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm unhappy about the fact that Jeremy thinks I'm unhappy. So that's as unhappy as I'm prepared to get. But downside deviation is going to give you your worst case scenario, really, that you're looking at. The problem with downside risk, although this is probably a lot more relevant for the individual investor, is that this is not really something that is very easy to calculate, especially for the type of investor who's most concerned about downside risk, the retail investor. It's not something that sits easily in Excel and it's a single formula that you plug into a series of numbers and out pops your downside risk calculation. What about the regulator? I said the regulator is concerned about the performance of an investment that is different than what he was expecting from it. So tracking error is one way to look at that type of risk, and it really talks about the divergence between the price behavior either of the portfolio and a benchmark or of the portfolio and what you were expecting from that. So the benchmark doesn't necessarily have to be an established market index. It could also be the basket or the, the sort of the, the relevant group of assets from which the investment portfolio could have been constructed. This is often used in the context of an investment that, please note, didn't perform poorly, but just did not perform the way that it was intended. So tracking error is very useful to say, where is my deviation from the expectations? Now, tracking errors also use the assumption of normality, because it's really a standard deviation percentage of the differences between your portfolio or your asset performance and the benchmark or the, the sort of universe performance. Once again, we've got the same problem as we had in the case of, of standard deviation or volatility, and that is that it's not forward-looking. It doesn't tell us anything, even if there is a large tracking error currently in a portfolio. You've got no idea whether that tracking error is going to persist in future. Same applies if you've got a zero tracking error. Who says that tomorrow that tracking error will still be zero? Unless you understand what caused the tracking error in the portfolio and you can um, interrogate whether there will be persistency in the basis for that tracking error, it's incredibly difficult to use this at all on a forward-looking basis and tell you anything about the future risk of an investment. Now, tracking error also has a relation through to another concept that is used quite widely in the industry, which is called active risk. And this is particularly relevant if you are looking at portfolio mandates that are given on the basis of an allowable tracking error. Now, active risk really talks about creating a portfolio that is mostly interested in replicating or, or sort of beating the returns of the benchmark. And it really talks about how do you step away from the benchmark in order to create that divergence in your investments. And I do know that, for example, in many of the developed markets, there's quite a big move towards really focusing on the level of active risk in portfolios that claim to be actively managed, but actually are benchmark huggers. The level of active risk is not sufficient to show that there is sufficient deviation from the benchmark in order to justify actively managed fees, for example. So if you are interested in a fund that has very low active risk, this is where we start talking about index tracking type of investments. If that is what is important in your mandate, then this is really the way that you're going to get the lowest active risk is really to replicate whatever is in your performance or your benchmark risk. So finally, we now have start get to something which we can use that can actually help us 
to calculate a type of risk that is a lot more relevant in our investment portfolio decision-making, as well as our mandate-giving sort of um, environment. And it, the best way, as I say, there, to minimize active risk is really to look at the relative risk relative that you will minimize through replication and to match return in that way, which will also minimize tracking error. So let's talk index tracking. How is the best way to really ensure that you've got zero active risk, very low active risk, in terms of managing a portfolio? Well, full replication really is the ideal. So in this ideal world, theoretically, what you should get if you do full replication index tracking are all those wonderful things. Zero active risk, zero tracking error, a guarantee of relative performance, certainty of matched exposures, full asset backing, full transparency. Wow, this sounds like nirvana. Is this practical, however, to expect exact full replication? There are some practical issues that we need to acknowledge in terms of why even a full replication index tracking strategy will never be able to give you exactly what the benchmark index gives you. Costs. Indices are costless calculations. They are just mathematical calculations with zero costs in them. Now, that's nirvana as far as I'm concerned. So if you just introduce the normal frictional costs that would be associated with implementing the index, you're immediately looking at one source of deviation between your index and your portfolio that fully replicates that index. There are some unavoidable charges in addition to frictional costs, so oh, sorry, tracking... Um, trading costs, and the like. There's also management, administration, regulatory charges. So to expect that a, an index tracking product will give you exactly the same performance as the benchmark index is unreasonable and is certainly not able to do that. One of the problems also over and above those cost issues that I mentioned there is that there are many aspects about a benchmark index that is, just makes it non-replicable. So let's think of complex corporate actions. The index interprets and implements corporate actions at a certain stage and based on certain pricing, which is not the reality for the fund manager that physically has to own those assets that replicates the index. Think of a rights issue. Think, think of an unbundling um, exercise, as we will probably now see with SAB when AB InBev deals, deal goes through. There's the timing of cash flows that often re result in these differences between what is practically and feasible for the portfolio manager to implement versus what the index, just this beautiful, costless, theoretical exercise can do on the computer. Very interesting for me also is this concept of what about when you have a breach in benchmark mandate? Let's think of our SWIX 40 index. Let's think of a retirement fund that is at the maximum 75% allocation to equities, and it's all in domestic equities, and the benchmark index that you give it is the SWIX 40 index, where NASPERS now is more than 22% of that index. 22% times 75%, you're over 15%. Does Regulation 28 allow you to have more than 15% in a single security? No, it doesn't. If you give that type of mandate to an asset manager, you're expecting him to do not only the impossible, but to do something which is in breach with the mandate. 
So very important that when we look at the indices that we use in giving benchmark mandates, that we ensure that they're actually consistent with the mandate or the, 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 yeah, the mandate for that type of product. We can take that idea further and say, can you really, in a Sharia-compliant fund, expect the fund manager to perform similar to the all-share index? No, because there's a huge part of that index that is not part of his allowable universe. These are the sort of things that when it comes to allocating indices for benchmark mandates becomes incredibly important, not just in terms of are you being fair to the investment manager, but more importantly, what can you expect in terms of the performance that can be generated from that asset manager. Finally, rounding differences. Shares trade in whole units. When you've got a relatively small fund, you actually just can't implement to the tenth decimal place the exact exposures that the index would, would allow you. So the next question then to say is which type of index am I trying to track? Am I looking at the price index or the capital gain or the capital only index? Or am I talking about a total return index? Because they're quite big differences. And theoretically speaking, it is relatively or more easy to track a price index than it is a total return index. So typically your replication is done at the price index or the capital index level. That's really where it's most feasible to do so. Given the, the previous constraints that I've mentioned, this is really where you're looking at the most success that you can expect to have. So that risk of the relative return, which is really your total return relative to the return that the investor will get, really is borne by the investor. The asset manager can't really do all that much about it. Whereas if you're looking at a total return index, what is required here goes beyond full replication. So let's just think in terms of an equity index, dividends that are paid out. In the total return index, the dividends are included in the calculation of the index on the ex-dividend date. What is the reality for the fund manager? He only receives the cash flow of that dividend sometime in the future. He then has to go into the market, buy at whatever the price level is at the time. It might be higher or lower compared to where the index included it. And he's got to incur the costs to reinvest that dividend. Do you see where the problems come in in terms of having full replicability when you're talking about a total return index? What you're finding here is that that risk of relative performance now shifts onto the investment manager. So if you're expecting your investment manager to perform according to a total return index, be aware of these sources of uncontrollable risk that you're expecting something from the fund manager which is not within his power or within his domain to be able to implement. So what are the alternatives to full replication? What if we don't follow a full index replication strategy? So parcel replication is something which is very popular and can be argued a lot more efficient than full replication. If we look, for example, at USITS, the European Unit Trust um, and, and Collective Investment Scheme regulations, they only ask for 90% physical replication, full replication, and the other 10% can be done through sampling, it can be done through synthetics. There's a whole range of ways in which you can do that last 10%. And it really is about finding the sort of the optimal level between implementation risk and then operational efficiencies. Because typically what you find is that it's quite difficult in some of those very large um, number of constituent indices to do full replication all the way through. 
Synthetic replication, where does that come in? Well, it's certainly useful in the cases where you have struggling, struggles with direct or cost prohibitive ownership. Think in terms of equity markets, that's very difficult to actually access and hold physically, like emerging markets, for example. Think of commodities, think of currencies, things that you are not allowed to hold on a full replication basis, for example. The problem that you have is that this introduction of sampling into your investment management process, um, can, although it can reduce your implementation cost, the, um, you, you might find yourself in a situation where you're actually missing the relative performance that you were looking for. In some extreme cases, performance is even manufactured using derivatives. So let's think in terms of some of our commodity markets, where it's not practical to store things in physical form. You know, you can't very well expect Sanibank to have a whole lot of barrels of oil in its basement garage to back the oil ETN that it offers. Or what are we going to do with corn and with wheat, or more even so, currencies? It's not practical always to do physical replication. The problem that you have here is you now start introducing model risk. What if the model that is being used to do the sampling or that's being used to do the synthetic replication is flawed? And that's an additional type of risk that needs to be brought into your consideration. What about enhanced indexation? So in enhanced indexation, we're actually attempting to give performance different from the benchmark. So now you're not trying to replicate the index. You're really looking here for that difference in performance, and you're doing that by taking on active risk. And typically that active risk would be done for example, in the equity market, by reducing exposure to shares that you expect to underperform and increase exposure to shares that you expect to outperform. Sounds easy, no? In, in practice, well, the success obviously depends on being positioned correctly. Um, I think we're all aware of some spectacular situations where active managers and even enhanced index managers have been positioned incorrectly. So that is an additional level of risk that you introduce into the equation. What about exotics? Now, the first thing I want to, to mention in terms of, of, of exotics is that here you are really looking for purposeful deviation, a lot more than just enhanced indexation. Here you are talking about strategies that looks at gearing or leverage or even inverse. So if the index level falls, my investment product is supposed to rise. So this really starts pushing the limits of, of indexation and very importantly, it's not allowed under CISCA, the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act in South Africa, which, by the way, also is the act that governs the majority of ETFs, but we'll get back to, to that. So interestingly enough also is that often when you hear negative news flow about especially ETFs, ETFs that are so dangerous, ETFs that are so bad, it typically results from this shrinking part of the index tracking market. So in the international markets post-2008, the demand for these exotic products are constantly diminishing, not only because of the associated risks with those type of investments, but also because regulations are just getting a lot tighter around these. And as I say, this is one of those things where South Africa has never even allowed it and really sort of allowed us to withstand a lot of the shocks post-2008. Just a quick word in terms of the evolution of indexing. So when we look at the first indices that were introduced, they were really introduced as economic indicators. And in fact, the Dow Jones Industrial Index was never designed as an equity market index. It was an economic indicator. 
It was put in place really to measure the performance of the broad American economy. And it was really only after many years that you got to the point where equity market indices and other market indices were started to be used as tools for benchmarking. So the performance of investment managers started to be measured relative to the performance of indices. But very little was sort of time and attention was given to the fact of whether that index is actually something which is appropriate for an investment portfolio. So typically your initial indices would have been something that just measures the performance of the overall market. And in South Africa we've got a long history of moving away from market indices to alternative indices because of the makeup of our equity market. You know, in the 1970s, more than 50-50% of the JSE, all share index, was gold companies. Not mining companies, gold companies. And you would all agree that having more than 50% of your equity investments in a pension fund is certainly not prudent. So we had these type of alternative indices, the 70, Findi, 30, Resi index, all sorts of downweighted resources indices, which was then replaced with the free float indices and all sorts of measures that were put in place to modify the original market indices, which were really just designed as a, as a benchmarking or a performance tool. So we could use these indices to actually set them as benchmarks for our investment managers. Because the next level of, of development was really that these then became the underlying reference points for financial products. So these financial products include passive tracker funds, but they also included the things that can be used to hedge exposures. So which is by far the biggest option in the, in the South African market that trades with the highest level of liquidity? The top 40. The top 40 index is used as a means to hedge the South African equity market, even though most funds are not invested according to the top 40 index. A dirty hedge. And it's really because of this history of us using indices that were designed for, for one type of purpose, for something totally different. Recently, it's become a means to define a strategy for alpha, actually generating performance from an index relative to the traditional market index that can actually give you outperformance relative to that. And that's really where this blurring has come between active and passives. So I quite like this, um, this infographic or picture that um, NSCI indices have put together, and it really talks about the different sources of return that you've got in the market that really captures different components of it. So we know that in the 1980s, really, portfolio return, according to the capital asset pricing model, was just divided into alpha and beta. And by the way, if you still think that index tracking or beta only refers to market cap weighted indices, you're about as 80s as the 18. It's time for us to move on because already in the 1990s, we started to split alpha into systematic beta and pure alpha. And systematic beta are something different than the classifications for your broad market beta, which we can split into regional betas or country betas or even sector-specific betas. And we're already moving to the point where many of those broad market betas are all not just market cap-weighted indices, moving into this realm of what is called smart indices. I prefer systematic or strategic or style beta rather than smart beta. It almost sounds as though everything else then is dumb, and that's certainly not the idea. It's focusing on a particular factor that you're talking about. 
So under strategy beta, that's where you start getting indices like minimum volatility, momentum type indices. And under style beta, your RAFI, um, sort of low um, or um, value, value type indices that we've got, or the Divi Plus, something which focuses on high dividend yielding companies. So there's a whole host of indices that look at something different than just your market cap weighted broad Johannesburg Stock Exchange all share index market index. So when we move beyond market cap weighting, it is certainly true that traditional indexation introduces other sources of risk. And I think the idea that you are fully participating in so-called bubbles and crashes certainly has a lot of theoretical grounding. It's, it can be argued that it's behind the curve, that it includes something after the price has risen, and it excludes something after the price has fallen, although there's some, some academic evidence that shows that that's not necessarily the, the case, that, it is, um, that there's more to it than just that. But it really talks about the assumption that size, the size of an organization, is the only determinant of its performance which of course we know is way beyond that. So beyond market cap weighting is where you see this rise of factor indices, where you both look at alternative selection criteria. So you're choosing the constituents of your index on different bases other than just size. And you also have alternative weighting methodologies. So I'm not going to weight the constituents on my index on the basis of market cap or size. The problem that you do have with these so-called smart indices, of course, is that it now introduces style or factor risk into your equation. And unless you actually do your assessment on the correct basis of why you are introducing a certain factor into your portfolio, you might get it all wrong. So please don't make the mistake that so many other um, novice investors make, and that is by looking at the past performance only to determine whether this is something that you want to have in the investment portfolio. My final thoughts. Let's just quickly talk about regulatory structure also. Because as I mentioned, exchange-traded funds in South Africa, the majority of them, are also registered as collective investment schemes. So they are regulated by two regulators, both the FSB and the JSC. And those few ETFs that are not collective investment schemes are still fully asset-backed. So your commodity ETFs, such as your gold, platinum, and palladium ETFs, are also um, um, registered as exchange-traded funds because they actually have physical underlying holdings. Exchange-traded notes, however, something quite different. It sounds a lot like an ETF, but an ETN is something quite different from a construct and a risk point of view because you're introducing, for starters, credit risk. Because an ETN is essentially a promissory note or a debenture, so you're also taking on the risk of the issuing company. Typically, a large bank would be required to issue an ETN. But you're also taking on asset class risk beyond what would just be allowed in ETFs, specifically physical commodities and currencies. Now, interestingly enough, under the Pension Funds Act, the holding of physical commodities is allowed. But under CISCA, it is not considered an allowable asset, mostly because of the history that, well, physical commodities don't pay a yield. So if your view is that you only invest in something that pays you a yield, you would understand why physical commodities are excluded from CISCA. Very important also is in your mandate risk to consider when you're looking at including an exchange-traded note. It typically would be included in the 10% of alternative assets within your Regulation 28 um, um, compliancy. 
But what are you actually investing in? And the look-through principle, the underlying investments within that exchange-traded note is very important and is certainly required from a Regulation 28 point of view. Because as exchange-traded notes go, the underlying reference asset of that note can also be representing very high or very low risk, depending on what it ex is, is exposed to. So in closing, really just some final thoughts in terms of not just choosing risk metrics, but maybe also using specific indices in index-based investments. So if you are the investor, my message to the investor really is don't confuse relative risk metrics to absolute risk metrics. So coming back to my original statement that ETFs are low risk, they are certainly low risk from the point of view that they are regulatory, very safe. They are low risk from the point of view that they've got either very low or zero tracking error and very low active risk. That does not mean that the absolute risk of that investment is low. It's still relevant to the asset class that is being tracked by that investment. If you are the fund manager, make sure that you select your risk metrics on a basis that is fit for purpose, what you're trying to achieve with measuring that risk. And please, 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 Try for once to actually live up to the notion that we treat customers fairly and that we put our investors first and actually think of risk from their point of view, not from your own business risk point of view. We've got so much of risk management that is done on the basis of, I don't mind too much if I lose 10%, as long as my competition lose 12%, then I'm still okay. Absolute risk for your investor rather than relative risk for you as the asset manager. And if you are the asset consultant, Please bear in mind that not all risk that we can measure is attributable to the fund manager. There's a whole array of additional risks that need to be considered when you introduce a benchmark index into the mandate. And also then make sure that you select mandate benchmark indices that are actually aligned with the purpose of what you're trying to achieve with that investment. Time for some questions. Any questions for Narina? I'm not going to get off that lightly, I'm sure. <laughs> that means it was a very good presentation. Okay, I'm going to hijack one of the questions that was asked on the app. Um, it basically said, given the risk of, of your derivative index mm. tracking, mm. Would, do you believe we should be introducing that into our passive low-risk type investments? I think the way that we assess risk should be much more about the underlying exposure than it is about the structure in which the investment is housed. Um, this is certainly the way that your large endowment funds, for example, would be looking at managing risk. So it really is for me not so much about is this thing a note or is it a fund? Yes, that does introduce an additional risk, but bear in mind that there's a regulator also that assesses who's allowed to issue an exchange-traded note, for example. They're not going to allow Joe Schmo's fish and chip shop to list an ETN on the JSE. No, it has to be a very well-capitalized bank with a very large balance sheet and deep pockets. So I think when we look at these, for me, what's a lot more important is to actually look into it. X-ray those funds, X-ray those indices, even the things that you think are low risk. So for example, combining a low volatility index with a property index and with a financial index, and lo and behold, your sectoral exposure is going to be massively overweight to financials. 
If that is not appropriate in terms of the investment mandate, be very careful of not introducing unintended risks and unintended consequences in how you combine these different indices. It's often still relatively easy to evaluate a single index. A lot more needs to be done in the combination of the different benchmarks and the different indices that are put together on a total asset allocation basis. And especially if you are handing out mandates to different asset managers, bear in mind that they can only see their portion of the overall portfolio that they're managing. They cannot be expected to manage the coincidental risks in the rest of your portfolio. That is the role of the asset consultant, of the, the asset allocator, really, in the portfolio. And I think an, an, a role which we don't take seriously enough at all, and we don't really consider these unintended consequences. Thank you very much. Are there any more questions? One over there. I'm just coming back to the investor risk. Have you, what would you recommend is, is a good way of trying to explain to the investor the inherent risk in a portfolio? I think what's really important there is to understand what is the investor trying to achieve? What is his investment goals? What are his objectives? And although they might at the outset say to you, I just want to get the highest return, just give me as much as you can. Um, you obviously need to introduce the concepts of how does one get high return, and that's where the first level of the type of risk comes in. And I think it's about changing our, changing our, our narrative of how we talk about risks in portfolios. Presenting a retail investor with a number of standard deviations and volatilities and that sort of thing means absolutely nothing. You've got to convert it not only in potentially maybe the probability of loss, which is also a concept that they don't really understand well, but to say, how would you feel if you wake up tomorrow morning and your 100,000 Rand portfolio is now only 90,000? Will you be able to live with that or will that actually cause the bottom of your stomach to fall out? So I think it's about translating it into verbiage and into narrative that actually makes sense in the investor's world. And I think exactly the same applies to your non-retail um, investor, your professional investor as well, is really to translate these ethereal sort of risk metrics into something that really is relevant in the world that the, that the particular investor or, um, is, is, is living in. Yes. You mentioned the difficulties of uh, implementation uh, for a, an, an index manager. Mm. Um, in some cases, it seems to me that uh, these are simply because index methodologies have not kept up. Uh, for example, the, the uh, example you gave uh, of, of dividends, there's yes. actually no reason why uh, mm. in, in this age of, uh, uh, of instant communication, sure. it shouldn't be possible for them to take into account the actual date on which it becomes investable. Oh. Is that a problem? Is pressure being applied to the, to the index providers? I agree it's more work for them. But, uh, uh, you know, they, they are well paid for that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you raise an incredibly good point, and I think so much of what we see in index calculation methodologies are really just legacy issues, because you're absolutely right. Technology allows us to do this so much more efficient. I think where you do come into problems is, is, is I think the example of the dividend dates is still relatively 
easy to implement, although I want to you know, sort of mention this, the situation, for example, in the JSE that has a lot of deal-listed companies that declare and pay dividends in some hard currency that then has to be translated at some exchange rate, which means the, the RAND amount that the, that the investor receives in his account could vary between different investors, and also the time delay. How long does it actually take to do that? So if it's sort of a pure domestic equity index, still doable, but I think there are additional problems. I think what becomes a lot more difficult is the idea of, for example, um, net return indices, especially in the context of dividend withholding tax. So when we first had the introduction of dividend withholding tax, there was quite a, a wave of new, these net return indices being introduced, and it was sort of mooted as, oh, wow, great, we're taking care of the tax calculation in this for our investors. But not all investors pay dividend withholding tax. So now you've got to have another calculation for the ones that pay no dividend withholding tax or maybe only 5% or oh, actually he's a foreign investor so you can claw back his dividends depending on the tax treaty. You see where I'm going with this. So it's about identifying, I guess, which of these aspects that are introduced into the index calculations really is quite common across the full constituent list of the index that you're talking about. And I do believe that, for example, introducing simple things such as using just the dividend payment date rather than the, the ex-dividend date will already go a long way. Introducing costs. You can make some assumptions on the cost of implementing not just dividend reinvestments, but constituent changes. You know, we wake up on a Monday morning and the index that we used to have looks different because over the weekend the computer was just able to calculate it. The fund manager sits there and says, okay, I've got to sell a couple of things and I've got to buy a couple of things. It costs money. So I think by introducing some of these, we will never be able to fully eliminate all of it. But I think we can go a long way, and I think your point is very well made, that that is something that index providers can actually differentiate themselves by maybe calculating indices that are a lot more appropriate and relevant to be used as relative benchmark performance measures. It's on. So, um, tea will be served right outside the venue. Um, we're running a little behind schedule, but it's fine. We can meet back here at 22. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>